Thank you for listening to this audio message from Christ Fellowship Leesville. We exist to make disciples for the glory of Jesus. We pray God uses this message to help you grow in your walk with Christ. To learn more about Christ Fellowship, please visit us online at ChristFellowshipNC.org. Well, if you would be turning your copies of God's Word to Ruth chapter 4. Ruth chapter 4 as we continue to make our way through Ruth. And as you're turning there, if we have any uh, children that will be participating in our children's class this morning, we invite you to uh, meet our volunteers there at the back uh, where they will instruct you in God's Word there in that context, uh, there in that classroom. But as I mentioned, we're going to be finishing up the last chapter of Ruth this morning, though I'm thankful that uh, we're going to take one more week next week to do an overview of Ruth because there are so many themes and uh, uh, things that I think God yet wants us to learn from this book that we haven't really had a chance to focus in on. And so we will do one more week of Ruth next week. And then after that, we will begin our Summer in the Psalms series, where we're going to be preaching through a selection of various psalms over uh, about eight weeks uh, after that. So I'm excited about uh, finishing up Ruth this week, next week, and then diving into psalms together with you all in the weeks to come. Well, as we do every week, let me read for us from Ruth chapter 4, and then we will take a moment to pray and ask for the Lord's help. So I'm going to read the entire chapter again. I think it's so important that we have... God's word before us this morning. So Ruth chapter 4. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took 10 men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down. Then He said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption for yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now, this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other. And this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, You are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belong to Elimelech and all that belong to Kilion and Malon. Also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. 
you are witnesses this day. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, we are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Epaphra and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. And he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a Redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. Let's pray together. Lord, we are so thankful for the truth of your word. We're thankful that you are not a silent God, but that you have spoken to us. You have chosen to reveal yourself to us. You have shown us how you operate in this world. And Father, what we see is your faithfulness on display. And we know that it's only because of the finished work of Jesus Christ that stands in our place that we're able to see the glories that are on display in this book, in the book of Ruth. So, Father, we're thankful for the finished work of Christ, for his life, his death, and his resurrection. We place all of our hope on him and on him alone this morning. And we see just evidence of your grace and mercy and faithfulness, even here in the book of Ruth, for how you sustained your promised, all, your promised offspring and how you brought the line of David into the world from whom our Savior would one day come. And so, Father, we pray that you would use this chapter to challenge us to increase our faith in you as our gracious God who sovereignly provides for us. And so, Father, I pray that you would just help us to see your character and your nature on display as you are a promise-keeping, faithful God to keep the promise made to bring an offspring into the world who would one day crush the head of Satan. So, Father, we pray that you would guide us, that you would guide my words this morning, that you would lead us into all truth. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we've made our way through the book of Ruth so far, it's become clear that this is a, this is a very personal story, right? It's, it's a personal story about the struggles of an individual family, Naomi and uh, her loss, and then bringing Ruth along, and, and how God delivered them from the midst of their troubles, from the midst of their 
hardships. And so it, we can get lost in that, and it's very much a part of the book of Ruth, this very personal story of struggle and redemption and deliverance that God gives them. But what I want to remind us of and what emerges in Ruth chapter 4 is that God was working not only in their lives, but also with his eyes on a time frame far beyond Boaz, far beyond Ruth, and far beyond Naomi. What, what we have in this book is this beautiful intersection between God's redeeming work on a grand time scale of all of history, you know, bringing history to its intended purpose, and yet also providing for Naomi and for Ruth and for Boaz. We see his gracious work in the lives of an individual family. We see this short-term provision and faithfulness to these women, and we see his long-term plans being fulfilled for the redemption of man. In some ways, it reminds me of when Neil Armstrong, right, took that first step on the moon, when Apollo landed on the moon, and when he took that first step onto the surface of the moon, you all well know what he said when he said, one small step for man one giant leap for mankind, right? In that one event, two different things were happening. He was taking just one small physical step for himself. It's one man's individual step onto the moon. And yet at the same time, it was this incredible world-altering moment for the exploration of all of mankind that he was stepping onto the moon. All of that was happening in that one motion, in that one step. Well, in the same way, the book of Ruth is a story of a a small redemption, right, for one person, for one family, but a giant redemption for the peoples of earth that would, where God would bring a redeemer in Jesus Christ into this world through the line of Boaz and Ruth, through the line of David, until Jesus came through Joseph and Mary. So let's take a few moments just to remind ourselves of how we have gotten here to this point of what God has been doing in Ruth chapters 1 through 3. So just a brief review. We start off in Ruth chapter 1 with uh, being introduced to Elimelech and his wife Naomi. They have two sons, uh, Kilion and Malon, and they're living in Bethlehem in the time of the judges. But then famine comes to the land. They're hungry. They have no provision. And so they do the only thing they know to do to try to find food and provision. And so Elimelech takes his family to the land of Moab. But not long after they get there, Elimelech dies. Kilion and Malon take Moabite wives, Orpah and Ruth. But after about 10 years, uh, Kilion and Malon both die childless. And all that is left from those people is Naomi with her two daughters-in-law, Ruth and Orpah. But word comes to them that the Lord has visited his people by bringing food to them. And so they decide to, or uh, Naomi decides to, return to Bethlehem. And initially, she takes her two daughters-in-law with her. They are on their way together. But a few steps, it seems, into that journey, Naomi turns to her daughters-in-law and realizes, saying to them, you should just stay here. There's... There's nothing for you in Bethlehem. I'm not going to be able to provide an offspring for you to marry. There's no way for us to carry on the family name. You don't have children, so you should just stay here in Moab, find rest in the house of a husband, of a Moabite husband that you can find here, stay behind. 
Well, Orpah listens to Naomi and she stays there in Moab, but Ruth refuses. Ruth is committed to Naomi, but not only to Naomi, she is committed to the God of Naomi. She says, let your God be my God. Let your people be my people. And so she faithfully returns to Bethlehem. Well, she's not returning. She's going to Bethlehem for the first time as Naomi returns to Bethlehem. And they go there together. At the end of chapter one, Naomi proclaims that the Lord has emptied her, that he has been against her. And yet here she is with her faithful daughter-in-law that we just read at the end of chapter four, who was more precious to her than seven sons. And so Ruth goes to work in chapter two to provide for both she and uh, Naomi. She goes out to the fields to glean. And while she is there, Ruth chapter two tells us she just happens to be in the field of Boaz, right? It is God's sovereign direction that guides her steps into the field of Boaz, who is the nearest redeemer for their family. He is the one who can rescue and his, his righteousness and his graciousness is on display in Ruth chapter two as he provides for them above and beyond what he needed to. And so Ruth returns to Naomi and tells her who she met that day. And Naomi is full of hope and Boaz is a redeemer. He can provide for our family. And then Naomi comes up with the plan we saw last week in Ruth chapter 3 that I think we can call at best a shady plan, an unwise plan, but nevertheless, God used it to bring about the circumstances we find ourselves in as we begin Ruth chapter 4 because as Ruth approaches Boaz, and tells him essentially that she is willing to marry him, to redeem the family of Naomi. Boaz says that he will, but there is one small issue. And that there is a redeemer, a relative who is closer, who is first in line, that would be ahead of Boaz in line to be able to redeem the inheritance of Elimelech and of Malon. And so Boaz says If he chooses to redeem it, then let him redeem it. But if not, I will marry you, Ruth, and I will care for you and Naomi. And so as we enter into chapter 4, that's that's the tension we're faced with, is what, what is going to happen with this other Redeemer? Here's the obstacle in the way of God providing for, of Boaz being able to provide for Ruth and Naomi. What is going to happen with this other Redeemer? But it's here that we see in the midst of that tension how God faithfully provides, how he sovereignly provides in the midst of difficulty and trials and hardship, how he provides both in the present and for generations to come. It gives us a glimpse into how God operates in the world, how he can be at work in the lives of one small family in one corner of the world and yet be accomplishing great and unthinkable things and bringing the Savior into the world. And so what we're going to see is that God doesn't neglect one for the other, right? He doesn't neglect his people in order to accomplish his grand purposes, nor does he neglect his grand purposes in order to care for his people. He does both at the very same time as he provides for his people, both now and into eternity. He's doing it all at one time with faithfulness, grace, mercy, and generosity, So what we're going to be able to do in Ruth chapter 4 is watch as God sovereignly provides. 
And so we're going to see him do that in three different ways. There are three ways that God sovereignly provides. First, we're going to see in verses 1 through 6 that God sovereignly provides through ordinary events. He provides through ordinary events. Second, God sovereignly provides through faithful people. And third, God sovereignly provides through miraculous intervention, through miraculous intervention. So let's begin there with verses 1 through 6 as we see that God sovereignly provides through ordinary events. Look there with me at verses 1 through 6. And in some ways, verses 1 through 6 that we just read is really just boring legal proceedings, <laughs> right? It's, it's tempting to kind of read through that and think this is just a bunch of legalese, right? This kind of procedure that had to take place that Boaz had to go with, uh, had to go through with to find out what was going to happen with this other redeemer. But what I want us to see as we work our way through verses one through six is to, to see God's hand at work in normal, ordinary events, even events like legal proceedings that happen, how God's at work even in the midst of those kinds of moments. Right? We know from the context of this book as a whole that the author of Ruth wants us to see that the hand of the Lord is involved in every moment. That he's in perfect control of everything that happens. Right? We saw that, as I already mentioned, in Ruth chapter 2 when it says uh, Ruth just happened to be in the field of Boaz. Right? That's the author of Ruth saying, no, this is God directing the steps of Ruth into the field of Boaz. And we see that exact same kind of language happening here in verses 1 through 6. You know, it's, it's, it's right here again. It says, Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. And what happens? And behold, right? The Redeemer's there. The very guy he needs to talk to just happens to be in the exact right spot at the exact right time to find out what is going to happen, right? This is the, the author of Ruth's way of saying to us, God is in control even in this moment. Even through these legal proceedings that need to take place at the city gate. The Redeemer is there. And so how is this moment of tension going to be resolved? Well, God sovereignly brings the Redeemer there. He's there. And Boaz says there in verse 1, Turn aside, friend sit down here. And so he calls this Redeemer, who is never named, by the way. We never know who this is. And I think that's intentional. The author wants us focusing on Boaz and Naomi and Ruth. Those are the main characters. This man who does not take, uh, take on the redemption, his name is not remembered. And so he says, turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he, he sits down. And then verse 2, Boaz takes 10 men of the elders of the city and says, sit down. So the gate of the city was a formal place for these kinds of proceedings to happen. There would have been seats around gathered for this very purpose. So he gathered the 10 elders of the city to be witnesses of what is going to transpire. And so uh, everyone's seated down. Everyone is witnessing what's going to happen. And uh, Boaz tells this redeemer, this closer relative, that Naomi is selling the land that belonged to Elimelech. You see that um, there in verse 3. Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. 
Now let's just pause there. and I want us to be sure we understand what's, what's happening here with the exchange of land because this is the first mention of any exchange of land happening in Ruth. It's been all about Ruth finding a redeemer in the person of Boaz, but now Boaz is introducing this concept of the land. So let's be sure we understand what's happening so that we know why the decisions are made that are made here in this passage. Under Old Testament law, and if you want to read it sometime this afternoon or another time, you can find it. Uh, one of the places you can find it in Leviticus is in Leviticus 25. Under that Old Testament law, the land of Israel was never to be permanently sold. So when God's people came into the land, he divided it up among the tribes of Israel, right? The 12 tribes each had a section of land. And within each section of land, God apportioned, they divided out what land belonged to what clans or families within each tribe. And it was assigned to them. And that land assignment was permanent. So they would sell land, but it's not the way we think of selling land today. They were essentially leasing out their land. But every 50 years in the year of Jubilee, all the land that had been, they called it sold, but had been leased out returned to its original owner always. There was never a permanent transfer of land. There was never to be a permanent transfer of land to another family. So you would, <clears throat> we're talking about big family units, not, not core family units, big family units, right? The land stayed inside that group of people. So what would happen if you wanted to, quote, sell your land, you would just calculate how many years until the next jubilee, and your lease would be determined by how many crops there would be until that next 50 years were ended. So if you were into year 30 of the Jubilee, you would, you would have 20 years left. And so you would lease out your land to that person for 20 years. And then at the end of that time period, at the end of that 50 years, everybody's land went back to its original owner. And so likely what had happened <clears throat> in the time of famine, Elimelech, had done everything he could to provide for his family. And he had leased out all the land that they owned to other people. And then even that wasn't enough money to provide. And so they ended up leaving. So when Naomi comes back, the land that belonged to her family was in the hands of other people. Now, you had a right to buy back your land. You could buy it back by paying that remaining lease from the person who currently has it. But you had to have the legal standing to do so. And Naomi didn't have the legal standing to buy it back. They needed a kinsman redeemer to buy back the land. And as you become that kinsman redeemer, if you're going to become a part of the family, then you have to do what the law calls you to do. And that would include taking on Ruth and Naomi. So when Boaz first mentions the, 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 the opportunity here to this closer redeemer, he says, look, you can redeem the land. And at first he says, there in verse 4, the redeemer says, okay, I'll redeem it, right? He sees it as a good business opportunity. This land would now, he can buy it back from the people outside the family that currently have it leased. He'll buy it back. And then it will be permanently his because he was part of the family of Elimelech. He can now, he can now have this, this land. It would belong to him and to his family and his inheritance to come in future years. He could quickly turn it over, lease it back out, and make some money, right? It was a good business deal for this guy. <clears throat> 
But then Boaz says, oh, but by the way, <laughs> let me tell you about something else that happens when you, when you buy the land. I want to be sure you're aware. You see that there in Ruth chapter 4, verse 5. That the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead and his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, verse 6, Well, I, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption for yourself, for I cannot redeem it. You see what happened there in the moment the Redeemer realizes this isn't just an opportunity to make money. This is actually going to cost me money. I'm going to have to provide for another family. I'm going to have to provide for Naomi. I'm going to have to provide for Ruth and any children that Ruth may have. So all of a sudden what seemed like a windfall to him seems like a negative to him and it's going to cost him a lot of money. So that's what he means when he says it will impair his inheritance. The inheritance he would have to pass down to future generations, it would be divided up among other potential children. It would, uh, he would have to be spending money he hadn't planned to spend. And so he simply says, look, I can't do it. I'm not going to do it. And so Boaz, if you want to redeem, if you want to be the redeemer, then you can have the right of redemption. I am giving it up to you. Now, let's just take a moment to reflect over what happens here. I mean, submitting to this legal procedure was a risky move for Boaz, right? I mean, I think the first three chapters of Ruth have intentionally, I think it's part of the author's purpose. It has been made clear, intentionally made clear that Boaz deeply cared for Ruth. Right? He had been over the top generous to Ruth and to Naomi. He had cared for them above and beyond what he had to do. He had had in chapter three personal conversations with Ruth. Right? He deeply cared about her. He very much wanted, right, to marry her. He wanted to be the one to provide for Naomi. He wanted all of these things. And yet here he is submitting to this legal procedure that could have taken all that away from him because this other man had every right to, to ruin the dreams that Boaz would have of taking Ruth as his wife. So, so why would Boaz do this? Why would he even bring it up? Why would he tell Ruth there's another redeemer? Why would he make anyone aware of it? It doesn't seem that this other redeemer even knew about the situation with Ruth, right? He had to tell him about it. Oh, by the way, if you redeem the land, you're also going to take her. So it seems that potentially Boaz could have found a way out of this by just keeping quiet. So, so, so why take the risk? Well, because Boaz was a righteous and worthy man. And to do otherwise would have gone against God's clear command in Scripture. It would have gone against the clear letter of the law that said the closest relative has the right of redemption. And Boaz refuses to disobey God's law. He refuses to take the unjust, unrighteous approach, even if it means he's risking losing everything that he wanted. You see, what, what we see here is 
Boaz is a man after God's own heart, which would one day be used to describe his offspring in the person of David. Boaz is resting in the sovereign purposes of God. Boaz knows that God is at work even in normal, ordinary events like legal proceedings. So he doesn't plot, he doesn't scheme, he doesn't try to find some subversive, manipulative way to avoid an outcome he doesn't want. Instead, Boaz knows what God's law says. Boaz knows what God's law requires in this moment. And so it seems that he simply knows that if he is faithful to do what God has called him to do, that God will take care of the outcome. His job is to be faithful and trust God with the results. You see, God had this other redeemer come at the right time. God gave Boaz the right words to say. God ensured the other potential redeemer wouldn't have the resources or desires to redeem Ruth and Naomi with her and all that that would have cost them. But Boaz didn't know any of that. He didn't know how God was at work in the background. All Boaz knew was what was right in front of him and what God had called him to do. And that is obey his law and give the opportunity for this other redeemer to redeem the land and to redeem Ruth and Naomi. Therefore, he simply acted in a way that would please the Lord. That's all he could do. And he had to trust God for the rest, even in a normal, ordinary event like a legal proceeding. Now, Boaz didn't have the book of Jeremiah or the book of Proverbs. He existed long before them, but he was trusting in these kinds of truths. Jeremiah chapter 10, verse 23. I know, O Lord, that the way of man is not in himself, that it is not in man who walks to direct his steps. That God is sovereignly directing the steps and the conversations and the decisions that are made in the midst of that legal proceeding. Or Proverbs chapter 16, verses 8 and 9. This is so applicable to Boaz's situation. Better is a little with righteousness than great revenues with injustice. The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. Boaz says, I would rather have little and not get what I want than to be unjust. So I will trust the Lord. I will follow his law. I will do the, trust thing, the just thing, and I will trust that the heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. The Lord is in control of the outcome. You see, the same is true in our lives today. We, we are called to live for the glory of Christ, to live lives that are pleasing to him. We are told to, to obey all that Jesus has commanded us. That's the nature of discipleship given to us at the end of Matthew right, to teach all, uh, all that Christ has commanded us. That's what we're called to do. We're called to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. That's what we need to put our efforts into. And if we're putting our efforts into that, into walking by the Spirit, to, to living lives, to, to walking in a manner worthy of the Lord, then we can simply rest and trust God for the outcome. You see, far too often we get caught up and trying to control outcomes 
instead of living faithfully. Now, it's not wrong to try and and control outcomes to a degree. But if you do that and you forsake righteous, faithful, God-honoring, Christ-glorifying living, then you're not pleasing the Lord. I mean, Jesus tells us, right, don't worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow has its own worries, right? We, We don't need to do that. God's in control. And so if we do what is right, if we do what is faithful, we can trust God with the results. And that's what Boaz knew. He went into this ordinary, everyday legal proceeding. He, in the moment, didn't know what the outcome would be. But he knew what the right thing to do was. And so he trusted the Lord. He walked in righteousness. And God provided. God provided by guiding that whole legal proceeding. And so we see the Lord's sovereignty over ordinary events, but he's also sovereign over faithful people, right? God consistently uses faithful people to accomplish his purposes. Look there with me at verses 7 through 12. Verse 7 begins uh, immediately with this strange custom that's mentioned there in verse 7. Now, this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other. And this was the manner of attesting in Israel. Now, I'm sure banks today are thankful that this is no longer their practice, right? That we're not dumping our shoes on the counter uh, when we get a loan or whatever may happen, right? But, but this was the custom in the day. This is what took place. And just as a quick side note, I want you to notice with me that there was a custom that needed to be explained. So that, that tells us two things. One, Ruth was written far after the time in which the story occurred. Right? We know that it was written generations into the future because it was written after David was born, looking back on these events. And it was so far removed that the author of Ruth thought, they probably are not going to have a clue what I'm talking about when I talk about some guy taking off his sandal and giving it to somebody. So I need to explain what's happening here. So it tells us a little bit about how much time has passed between when the events happened and when Ruth was written, which secondly tells us a little bit about last week's chapter, right? (laughs) That some people speculating that Ruth going to Boaz in the middle of the night and, and the spreading of the, the wings or the garment or lifting up, you know, uncovering his feet uh, with the sheet in the middle of the night, that somehow that was a custom. But notice the author doesn't bother to tell us that this was some strange custom because it likely wasn't. It was just a shady plan by Naomi, right? But when customs need to be explained, what happens? The author tells you about the strange custom that needs to be explained. And so we're told about this. And so what happens in verse 8, this redeemer that, that turned down the opportunity to redeem the land, he tells Boaz, buy it for yourself. And he takes off his sandal and hands it to Boaz as a witness and testimony of his commitment to give up his right of redemption. And that now transfers to Boaz. So it now belongs to him. And at that point, Boaz says these beautiful words of commitment in verse 8. So let's just read Boaz's quote again here, beginning in verse, sorry, beginning in verse 9, in verse 9. Boaz says, You are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belong to Elimelech and all that belong to Kilion and Malon, also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, 
Um, I have bought to be my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead and his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. This is Boaz proclaiming. It's not just out of love for Ruth, out of love for her worthy character, for out of love for her as a person, though I think it certainly includes that. I think that became clear in Ruth chapter 3 with the way Boaz spoke to her, to her. He deeply cares for Ruth, but it's even beyond that, right? He cares for Naomi. He cares about carrying on the name of Elimelech and Malon. He cares about doing the righteous thing and doing the right thing. And so that's what he proclaims there in verses 9 and 10. And by the way, I think part of the reason we're told about the refusal of the other Redeemer is to help us understand that Boaz is doing this at, at some significant cost to himself. Right? There is a sacrifice here that Boaz is making. The other Redeemer wasn't willing to make the sacrifice. But Boaz, at great cost to himself, is willing to take on responsibility for Ruth and for Naomi. Now, of course, this is also, I think, ultimately a good thing for Boaz. And he said as much in chapter 3 that your kindness to, to even desire to marry a man as old as me, Ruth, is, shows something about the worthiness of your character. So I think Boaz sees this as a, as a gift to him, but yet also at the same time, it is a financial sacrifice that Boaz is making in order to redeem Naomi, the land, and carry on the name of Elimelech through Ruth. But you see, all of this was God's doing by putting Boaz in the path of Ruth. It was God's timing, as we mentioned multiple times, that placed Ruth in Boaz's field. It was God's timing that had Boaz arrive at the right time that day. It was God's timing that had Naomi return with Ruth at the time of barley harvest when Boaz would be involved in the situation when he and Ruth could, could uh, uh, interact with one another. All of this was God's doing, but not only that, it was God's doing to raise up a man, a worthy man, a righteous man who would do the right thing every step of the way. There are multiple times that Boaz could have failed. Right? There could have been this annoying, homeless, destitute woman taking food from his field. How dare she? Right? He could have rejected her in the very moment, but what did he do? No, he poured out generosity and grace and mercy above and beyond what he needed to do. Boaz, in the moment that Ruth came to him in the middle of the night, and we have said it jokingly, but seriously, it was a compromising situation. Boaz could have made some really bad decisions in that moment. It could have ruined it all for everybody, but he didn't. Boaz could have schemed and lied and cheated and manipulated the justice system. And he could have never told anybody about the other Redeemer. He could have never made the other Redeemer aware and then married Ruth and then he finds out later and then the whole thing is negated. And then Ruth is, uh, sorry, uh, Boaz is shamed in the city gates because he tried to subvert justice in doing what was right. You see, every step of the way, Boaz did the just and right thing. That doesn't happen overnight. That's a lifetime of developing a character of a man who trusts God and wants to do the right thing every step of the way. 
It's a lifetime of Boaz likely being exposed to and being aware of and maybe even holding in his hands a copy of the Pentateuch or faithfully going and hearing it read every Sabbath and doing as what uh, Psalms would later call him to do, right? Again, he existed before the Psalms were written, but meditating over God's law day and night so that he won't sit in the seat of scoffers. Boaz is the fruit of God at work in the heart of a man. And it is through that righteous man that God provided for Ruth and Naomi. You see, in this particular situation, God didn't rescue through some kind of overwhelming, supernatural, miraculous event. It was simply through the faithfulness, generosity, grace, and kindness of a godly person. But it was no less a gift from God's hand than a supernatural miracle would have been. God often provides for you and for me through faithful people. And when he does, he still deserves the praise and the honor and the glory. It is God's doing every step of the way. So I just want to say to you this morning and remind you that you may even be the one God intends to bring hope and provision to the lives of others. You may be the righteous person that God wants to use in somebody else's life. In other words, the pursuit of godliness, your walk with Christ is not just about you. It's about how God intends to use you in the lives of others. So when you pursue righteousness, when you pursue obedience, yes, you ought to do it for the glory of Christ. You ought to do it for your own good, but you also ought to do it for how God can use you in the lives of other people. We talk about that all the time in this church, the importance of community and how he has called us to be here together, to hold one another accountable, to push each other toward Jesus. And so as you pursue a righteous relationship with Jesus Christ, God wants to use you in the lives of others. Sometimes it may just be a simple word of encouragement on a Sunday morning that lifts someone's spirits. Other times it may be something significant like what Boaz is doing and you sacrificially are called to provide for another family in need. Regardless of what it may be, small or big, God wants to use you in the lives of other people to do miraculous things. But that heart is cultivated over a lifetime of walking with the Lord. Boaz was a righteous man whose heart had been cultivated by God's sovereign grace and goodness throughout his lifetime to have him ready for this moment. And the fruit of that righteous man and his works can be seen there at the end of this section as we look at verses 7 through 12 when uh, we see there in verse 11 what all the, the people who are at the gate and what all the elders say in this moment. Look with me in verse 11 what they say. We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah who together built up the house of Israel. So just pause right there. These people, this is probably a common, maybe a common blessing in the day. They have no clue what they're saying, but they are saying something beyond their understanding, right? Something powerful and true that echoes into eternity because it is the house of Rachel and Leah from whom the 12 tribes of Israel came. And it is through the womb of Ruth 
truth from whom the church would come, right? Jesus Christ would one day come from the line of Ruth. And here we are gathered together as his people right now, this moment, because of the faithfulness of Boaz to redeem Ruth. So, so yes, Ruth would be like Rachel and Leah. But not only that, he says, may you act worthily in Epaphra and be renowned in Bethlehem. King David is from Bethlehem. We know that Jesus was born in Bethlehem, right? These are astounding words, prophetic truth being spoken about the offspring to come from this marriage between Boaz and Ruth. God intends to save his people through this, uh, through the worthy offspring that would come from them. And not only that, verse 12 says, And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. So here we're reminded that this is from Judah. That remember, Jesus is the lion from the tribe of Judah. And the reason Perez is mentioned, we won't get into all the details, but let's just say that Judah's sons were also died childless. And so though it is a, a much greater, it is a unrighteous, we've talked about chapter three being sketchy. What happens between Judah and Tamar is beyond that. And we're not gonna get into all the details today, but suffice it to say, it was a way of still God bringing a redemption of offspring into this childless family. And he rescued in that way and kept the promised offspring in the line of Judah alive. Otherwise it would have been cut off. And even through that unrighteous action of Judah with Tamar, God was still faithful and so the author of Ruth is saying, how much more is God going to accomplish through this righteous relationship? What greater things is he going to do through the righteousness of Boaz marrying Ruth? And all of this happened because of the faithful actions of a humble farmer in the land of Bethlehem. God's at work through ordinary events. God's at work through faithful men and women for the glory of his name. But finally, there are times when God also intervenes in miraculous ways. God also sovereignly provides through miraculous intervention. Look there with me at verses 13 through 21. You see there, right at the start of this section in verse 13, it says, Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife and he went into her and the Lord gave her conception and she bore a son. He gave her conception. The language chosen here is intentional. This isn't just a generic way of just saying, generally speaking, God is the one who is sovereign over the womb, though that's certainly true. No, this is specific that the Lord gave her conception. And it's also even... It's even more powerful if we reflect back on Ruth's previous marriage, right? We're here at the end of the book. We kind of forget what happened in chapter one. Ruth was married for 10 years to Malon and never had a child. It seems pretty clear that both Ruth and Orpah were barren. Ruth was barren. And yet, miraculously, the Lord intervenes and gives her conception. It's astounding as you read through the Old Testament how often God has 
the, the, the women who are in the line that would come from Eve, right? You have the promise in Genesis 3.15 that, that the Lord is going to bring an offspring from Eve who would crush the head of Satan. And as you track that offspring, who's that offspring going to be from Eve to Seth and then eventually through, through Noah and eventually it comes to Abraham. And then starting with Abraham, time after time after time, the wife of the patriarch, the wife of the one who should be in that line is barren. Sarah, Abraham's wife, can't have children. She's really old by the time God says, well, it's actually going to happen, and she has a child. And they have Isaac, and Isaac marries Rebekah, and then guess what's true of Rebekah? Rebekah is barren. She can't have children. But then God miraculously intervenes and grants her a child. And then they have Jacob and Esau, and Jacob ends up marrying Rachel and Leah. And Rachel, the, the wife that he desired uh, before all the complications happened there, she too was barren. God uses those situations to show his sovereign power to fulfill his promises. And we see that same pattern here again. Ruth was barren, but God intervenes and gives her conception and not only that, it wasn't a daughter because what they needed from a legal standpoint was a son. And he gives a son in this moment. And it is only because of the miraculous intervention of God in that moment. You see, God often places his people in difficult places, even seemingly hopeless situations, so that he can demonstrate his sovereign power to fulfill his promises. Right, it's what we see in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 1, verse 27, when Paul says, God chooses that which is weak to shame the strong. Or we see in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9, when Paul has this thorn in the flesh and he is pleading with God to remove it. But what does God say to him? He says, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Now, in this situation, the way God chooses to show his power is by granting conception because his promises require a son to be born so that the line of the promised offspring could continue on. But I just want to be clear this morning. It doesn't mean that's always how God provides in the midst of hardship and difficulty. So I want to be sensitive to those who, who, uh, who have desired to conceive a child and who have not been able to. Yes, God is able, and I want to say that without embarrassment, without shame, that God is able to miraculously grant conception in such situations, and we will plead with him to do so. But there are other ways that God provides and is just as faithful. And we don't always know what that's going to look like or how that's going to be, but we can rest that if we pursue him, he will be kind and good to us. So I just didn't want to be insensitive to that reality. But here in this situation, how God saw fit to continue to keep his promises to restore Naomi and to bring his Savior into the world was to give conception to Ruth. And it was by his miraculous and direct intervention that it took place. And so the women say to Naomi in that moment, by, by the way, 
what you're going to see here as we end that in some ways this really could be instead of this book could be called Naomi instead of Ruth. It begins and ends focused on Naomi. <clears throat> and they say of this redeemer now in verse 14, blessed be the Lord has not left you this day without a redeemer. May his name be renowned in Israel. Now the redeemer is talking about the child. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nurser of your old age. For your daughters-in-law who, who, for your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. You see, it is Naomi who was empty, but now has been fulfilled and completed through the marriage of Boaz and Ruth. It is God's faithfulness on display. And then verse 17 says, the women of the neighborhood gave him a name. So just pause here. I know we have a, a few uh, pregnant women in our church right now. And so I just want you to know verse 17 says that we should get to vote on the name of your children. By the way, if we're going to follow biblical precedent, this says that's what we should do. So at our next members meeting, we'll have that up for a vote. And we'll decide what the name of your child should be, okay? But can you imagine, right, how risky that is? <laughs> Well, what do you guys want the name to be? But that's what happens there in verse 17. The women of the neighborhood gave him a name saying, a son has been born to who? To Naomi. It was Ruth's child. But this is a story about the redemption and restoration of the family of Elimelech and Naomi. And so they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. <clears throat> Sorry, excuse me. Then, of course, the way the book ends, though, as we come to verse 17, the story slowly fades characters out of the story. The last mention of Boaz comes there in verse 13. The last mention of Ruth comes a few verses later. And then we're left, and it's just Naomi and the child. And then eventually Naomi fades from the spotlight, and it's all about the child from whom King David would come. And that's how the book ends. This is about God's faithfulness to fulfill his promises to his people. How God worked in overwhelming, miraculous ways, but also just in his sovereign providence over normal, ever, everyday, ordinary events to keep his promises and it is through Boaz that Obed comes into the world. Through Obed, through Obed that Jesse comes into the world. And through Jesse that David comes into the world. You see, the beginning of Ruth begins with incredible suffering of God's people. There's famine in the land. They have to move to another place. They've given up their land. They move to Moab. God takes out Elimelech and Malon and Kilion. They die in the land of Moab. Naomi is left with nothing. She is desperate and destitute. She has no idea what God is doing in that moment. And yet, by the time we get to the end of the story, he is working to produce a line of offspring through whom he will redeem all peoples. So listen. That's not what God is doing in our suffering necessarily. He's not bringing a Savior into the world. The Savior's already come. But he is no less faithful in the midst of your suffering. 
He provides, he sovereignly provides for us in so many ways, even through tragedy, even through hardship. He provides for us through ordinary events. He provides for us through faithful people. And he is even able to provide through miraculous intervention. And he has done all of those things to bring our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, into the world. And because he has done that, he is not now going to turn his back on you. Just listen to all that he did just right here in this one story to get Jesus into the world. Right, generation after generation after generation of faithfully sustaining the offspring until Jesus comes and then Jesus comes and he is the, the one and only son of God, the divine eternal son of God and he lays down his life for you on the cross. He dies and suffers and takes your sins on himself and suffers the wrath of God in your place. He has done that for all who trust in him. <clears throat> And therefore, he will be faithful to you. If he has done all of this to redeem you, he doesn't then turn his back on you. And just as he was faithful to restore Naomi, he will be faithful to redeem you and to keep you to the very last day. Let's pray together. Father, we are thankful for your kindness and for your goodness to us. Father, I do pray that you would help us just to see how even in everyday, ordinary events, you are faithfully at work for the good of your people. How you provide faithful men and women around us all the time to encourage us, to walk with us, to uplift us. We are thankful for how you provide for us in those normal ways, seemingly normal ways that we know are a gift from your hand. But Father, we also know that you are able to miraculously intervene in our lives. And so we are never... We are never without hope. We can always have hope because you are always able. You are sovereign over all things. You hold this world together by the word of your power. And it is in that sovereign power over all things, the steps of man and the very atoms of the universe, we rest in your sovereignty. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.